Hey, Tish. How are you? I am great. How are you, Seth? <laughs> That's great. You know, we've started this podcast now twice, and both times I've created significant awkwardness. Yeah, is that fair? Oh, mm-hmm. no, it is Oh, it's 100% fault. This, your fault. Yeah, uh-huh. that's okay. That's good. And I'm awkward because we're joined by a special guest today um, mm-hmm. that makes me feel um, all aflutter and, and <laughs> nervous and makes my heart pitter-patter. It's good. That should. Yeah, we've been <laughs> married for a really long time now. Um, so, yeah, mm-hmm. today we have Amber Tish. Is that correct? Yeah. We have not Amber Tish. We have Amber, comma, Tish. Comma. Yeah. Hi, Amber. Hi. Thank you, Tish. Let's just me and you yeah. talk for a little bit. Let's be normal. Let's be normal people who know how to say normal things. All right. Uh, you guys wrote a book, which is uh, really fun. I've never written a book with a spouse. What was that like? Like, tell me, what is, like, I just want to start off practically what was it like to write a book together? Did y'all take turns? Did you have like one Google Doc? What did you do? We did have one Google Doc, but then we also had like 400 other Google Docs. And so, <laughs> or at least I did. And then we would kind of put, so each chapter, okay, first off, the book is called The Deep Down Things. And mm-hmm. each chapter is an essay from Seth and then an essay from me, but on the same kind of topic. And so when I felt good about my essay, I would put it kind of in the master Google doc. Mm-hmm. And yeah. um, I don't put anything in the master Google doc until I feel really good about it. Like yeah. really, really yeah, yeah. good. I want to know the way I think about it is like, I can't build on the stones until I know what's been built already is steady and and stable. And so Mm -hmm. Seth is not right like that at all. Seth will just throw down all the words in a very short period of time. And he, he writes the first drafts that Anne Lamont tells us to write. Um, So and I just don't do that. And anyway, yeah. so it was a very interesting process to work together. And it was really revealing. I would I got frustrated with Seth a lot. <laughs> and he just kept saying, I'm going to write how I write and you write how you write. And eventually there was a little bit of give and take because he would mm-hmm. kind of put a little bit more craft into it in the earlier stages. Um, and that's something he wouldn't normally do. And I... Well, what do you mean? You're looking That's at me. so offensive. I put a ton of craft into my earth. I drafts. mean, of course you did. Of course you did. And everybody here knows you're an amazing writer. I mean, you really, really are. I don't mean it like that. But you you don't sit and like hone and hone and hone. And I will spend four weeks writing something that Seth will spend 30 mm-hmm. minutes. Right. Which we're Amber, just I don't know so if you're different. Like- no, I don't know if you're like this. Like after I write something, I delete all my early drafts in case I die. I don't want people to see how terrible they were. Like I, I hate people seeing my my Anne Lamott first drafts. Like I, that makes me horrified. Like I feel kind of hot thinking about it. So I get it. Oh, this yeah, is probably a pride yeah. issue. <laughs> I I will take the crappy stuff and copy and paste it and put it at the bottom of the document in case I need to like glean from it. Mm-hmm, later mm-hmm. 
And so that the good stuff is up top. But really, my drafts don't change all that much after yeah. after they go in. Um, gosh. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I have a separate doc open. Sorry, we're now talking about you and me and our writing styles, but I'll ask you in a minute, Seth. That's great. Um, I have a separate doc open whenever I'm writing, and I call it Death Row Darlings because, you know, Stephen King's Kill Your yes, Darlings. Kill Your Darlings. I, I'm not ready to kill them yet, but they need to go over here before I actually delete the file. So I will cut and paste, like, mm-hmm. words, sentences, paragraphs, and I will yes. keep it for the entire book, and I won't delete it till probably, like, I've yeah. signed that last thing for the publisher saying, yes, public or, you know, print it as is. So I hate totally. that too. Yeah. They're on death row. Yeah. That's right. They're in the sick bed. <laughs> yeah. Exactly. That's terrible. Those poor words. They're just sitting there languishing, waiting for some pardon, uh, you know, or clemency from the government. And they're just, they're, do you give them a last meal? Like, what do you do? Do you just, or do you just kill them? Honestly, it's very sad. I need to like put them out of their misery, but I don't know. They were darlings for a reason. You know, you like a sentence and you're sad to see it go, but you know it probably needs to go. So, okay, so y'all wrote a book in wildly different ways, but clearly the topic meant something to you both because, I mean, would you call this a memoir? It feels like a memoir to me, kind of-ish, sort it of. Does. Yeah, I I would call it um, memoir-esque, memoir-esque creative nonfiction essays. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's a good way to put it. I mean, it was based on real life events that the two of you walked through together, but you were then like extemporaneously learning from said events and and explaining what you've learned and what you hope the reader to learn to you. So kind of a both and, like using your real life. Um, what spurred y'all on to write this then? Like we all go through hard stuff. What What made you think, okay, this hard stuff is fertilizer for a book? Okay. Yeah, that's that's great. I mean, very succinctly, I can say that I had a great loss of identity and voice and vocation mm-hmm. and kind of lost myself um, because I was actually in a really beautiful community in a really beautiful place where I was serving um, in my gifting and really just loving my life. Um, mm-hmm. one-on-one with people and preaching, which I love. Yeah. And um, we called in a leader who really wasn't healthy. And um, and then it just kind of fell apart from there. I had to ask for help because I was the curate under this leader. Mm-hmm. And um, he spoke in, in some inappropriate ways and asked for help. And um, he eventually did end up um, not being the pastor of that church anymore. But um, my story and my the use of my voice um, was kind of like covered over and um, erased. Yeah. And so in in the despair that came in losing our church community and our people also just like just right after that COVID hit. And so the world kind of went upside down anyway. It was a very dark season. Mm -hmm. And, and so I didn't know that my second book was going to be about despair. And if I had been planning, what will my second book be? I would never have said, Oh, I'm going to write a book about despair. No, thank you. 
you know, I just didn't want to do that. I didn't yeah. want this to be my story. Um, but I'm so glad that we've done the work and I'm so glad we did it together. And Seth has this really cool part in the book where he is the one holding out hope for me when I am not when I am in despair and not feeling it at all. And I know so many couples, so many friendship relationships where there's one person holding out hope for the other. Yeah. Yeah. Um, You know, when you're in a really, really dark space with the person that you love, um, you can sometimes look at that person. This is actually something I have not said on another podcast. And I don't even know that I've said this to Amber. So this is, Drink with a friend, breaking news. Um, you can sometimes look at the other and wonder if you're ever going to get them back. Like, mm-hmm. is the yeah. person that I knew before the trauma, before the despair, before the hurt ever going to come back? And and like when you take your o- oaths, your vows of marriage, um, you know, you, you don't take this oath or this vow that, you know, you'll stay with the person um, if they change, you know, there's this whole idea of sickness and health, but like, that's not one of the vows that they really prepare you for is, Hey, like throughout the course of your marriage, there's going to be trauma. This person may disappear for a little bit and you still have to stay with them, (laughs) even if you don't know you're ever going to get them back. Um, And so part of holding out hope, particularly for and with Amber was holding out the hope that like all these things that I knew to be true about her before the trauma, before the, you know, before we left the church, before we came into a new faith space, um, all these things that I knew about her to be true, her poetry, her lightness, her beauty, like those things were going to come back. Like I had to hope that those things were going to come back. Um, Otherwise you just sort of drift in these existential questions of, you know, is this ever going to change? Is she ever going to get better? Mm-hmm. Is it ever going to get fixed? And then you, as the person who's tasked with carrying hope, can find yourself in a dark place. So, it, it, you know, when we talk about this book and when we talk about carrying hope, in some ways, I mean, for me, in some ways, carrying hope was a defense mechanism, you know? Like, I don't want to contemplate a life where I'm married forever and you know, despair. And the truth is, you know, I, I, I've read enough stories, you know, we've all read enough books. We all love books. Uh, we've read enough stories where some really, really dark moments, um, some despairing moments really do give in to hope and things change. Um, and so, you know, even throughout the writing of the book, throughout walking through the process with Amber, um, I could just think back to some of those stories, you know, the archetypal stories of hope and say like, it's going to get better. Like, I know it's going to mm-hmm. get better. And so I'm going to hang on to that. Yeah. I like how you've said that you, you have to hope, like you can't not hope because or otherwise what else is there? Um, I feel like that, that part of the marriage vows in sickness and in health for better or for worse, they almost feel like an insurance policy, like just in case, probably not going to happen, but you know, on the off chance it does instead of like the reality. I mean, I know it's not the case for everyone, but a lot of us get married young and we just have no idea what we're getting into. And so we say the, these words and just think, I mean, maybe this looks like on our deathbeds when we're 90, you know, sure. 
I'll stick with you. But no, it's there's a lot of sickness that is not necessarily the obvious, you know, invalid, bedridden kind of sickness. There's there's a lot that we have to, you know, we have to walk around being unwell while like going to Costco and picking up kids and, you know, just doing our things. And we have said we're going to stick with each other for it. That is really, really hard. And I think, Seth, you're right. There's like no other way to do that but to hope. Otherwise, mm-hmm. I don't know. Like, yeah, well, why not despair? There, yeah. It's also true that we become so many different people through the course <laughs> of, I mean, for our, in our 24 years. I mean, there there are some things that remain. Mm-hmm. But the truth is, I haven't all the way come back. I'm a different person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And you fall in love with your person over and over again. And you come to love somebody new sometimes. And that can be really scary. And it can be really beautiful. But I didn't know if I was going to come back. You know, I didn't know that I would ever write again. Hmm. Sure. You guys have have sections in your book, things like uh, eat the crackers, receive communion, name the knots, um, under the art of monasteries, visit a sacred space. It's all pretty sacramental. And I know your story that this is very intertwined with y'all's um, having become Catholic. But just for readers, you know, this is a pretty ecumenical piece of writing. And yet, what do you say to (laughs) perhaps the, um, you know, the the brothers and sisters among us who maybe are reticent to embrace certain trappings of sacramental living? What what do you say to those who want to read your words, but are a little scared to because of that? Get over it. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, you can. (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, honestly, like I'm old enough now that I'm like, I don't, yeah, get over it. So one of the things, you know, when I was a kid, I remember this, there's this thing that I'm really embarrassed about. I'm not even going to say the book title because it's ridiculous, but um, (laughs) I had been told in a certain religious context that a certain book was a bad book. Um, and I was probably 13, 12 or 13. And I found out that my sister was reading that bad book. And I went to my mom and I was like, mom, can you, can you believe that like Shell's reading this book? My sister, Hey Shell, if you're listening. And, um, (laughs) and my mom just was like, it's, it's a book. There are really beautiful things. It was a novel, by the way, there are really beautiful things in this novel and those things need to be valued and listened to and contemplated. And then there are things in the, in the, uh, book that are not so great and you should like not pay attention to those things or just discard the bones or whatever. And so from a very early age, yeah, probably 12, it was definitely before I was 13 um, based on some other conversations I had with my mom about gangster rap music later. <laughs> um, you know, my mom was a very big proponent of saying, contemplate and think about and consider the things that are worth considering and if you disagree with things, also like it's okay to disagree with them and to move on. And that doesn't necessarily kill the art, right? Like it mm-hmm. doesn't, it doesn't affect um, the fact that somebody's like poured their art and their story, their life, their whatever onto a page. So 
we we already have had some pushback on the fact that the book is too Catholic, and that's okay because guess what? Like, I'm Catholic. Amber's Catholic. Like right. we are. That's that's what we are. Um, and I don't think anybody's surprised by that. And the Lord Jesus Christ is certainly not on the throne, wringing his hands and going, "Oh my gosh, the Haynes wrote a Catholic book." <laughs> like, so that being the case, like we certainly see things a little bit differently than some people that listen to this podcast. Um, mm-hmm. I bet you there are people that listen to this podcast that don't believe in God at all, and that's right. I, I'm I'm down, man. Come on, like we can agree and disagree, and and still. Um, really like take the good uh, from the work. And so like when you talk about those sections, the truth is like we were created to do certain things. We were created to enjoy food with friends. Like we were made that way. Like when you're sitting with friends and you're eating a great meal, like everyone, no matter culture, no matter religion is like, oh my gosh, this is an amazing meal. Um, we were made to move our bodies. So no matter who you are, what religion, what, what culture, when you do something with your body that's hard and you accomplish it, you're like, oh man, I feel amazing. We were created, no matter the culture, no matter the religion, to, cre- you know, to create art. And so when we create a piece of art, when we share art, when we look at art, we can say, oh my gosh, like there's something in us that sings. And, mm-hmm. and because that's the case... Like this book really is for everybody because sacramentality is for everybody. And sacramentality is that that grace of God, the grace of the numinous, if you don't believe in God, like the grace of the divine that is given to us through these practices of life. Like we are not just meant to sit around and think all day and to lock ourselves in our mental cages. Like we're made to experience, to taste, to see, to smell, to hear, to sing um, that's what we're made for. And uh, so when we think about this book, like that's the way we think about it. Yes, it is very Catholic because we're very Catholic and that's our Catholic view on things. But no matter if you're not, like you can't argue with the fact that these beautiful, true, good things in the world actually give us hope. Hmm. I th- I've heard a few people have uh, some particular hangups with, Picking a patron saint. That's a Mm -hmm. very, very Catholic thing to say. And I think even before processing it or trying to like understand the, the underneath of that um, is, is a, you know, can turn people off and it has just a little bit. Um, And I understand that because I grew up that way. Absolutely. Uh, But the way that I want to talk about it and the way that I hope I talked about it in the book is, you know, we, we have people that have gone before us who have left us a story, a really beautiful story. And they were um, motivated by certain things and they were victorious over certain things and they, they had a message for us. And so I, I cannot imagine that we can look back at any culture throughout history that doesn't want to look behind them to the saints, to our ancestors, to, you know, for me, my mamma is always number one, number one saint lady. Mm-hmm. Um, and I knew her, her flesh and blood. So it, she has a story for me. 
And I look at pictures and I think of her strength and it motivates me. And so, I mean, I think it's a great invitation for people to explore. Also, just like relating to each other in our humanity. You know, I want to hear stories from all different walks of life. And it is very rare that I hear someone tell a story or when someone has made choices that I wouldn't want to make about my life today. But I know that if I lived the life that they lived, that I probably would be exactly where they are with their same Mm -hmm. faith, doubt, choices. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I have a really good friend, Tish. Um, His name is Todd Stockdale. I really love this guy. He is uh, a professor in New York. He's a real, he's a real piece of work. I love him to death. Uh, He's loud, larger than life. And um, whenever anybody asks him to give uh, an explanation for his theology, because he's a professor and he teaches in the, in the area of theology, um, he says, because, because he comes from a very evangelical background and he's no longer sort of in that, in that camp, he tells people, I believe what you would believe if you had experienced and knew all the things that I had experienced, have experienced and knew. And there's something really beautiful in that, in that he's like kind of giving himself grace to even um, be wrong about things and to be right about some things. And, and, and um, saying that about himself means that he's reflecting that back to someone else that like, Hey, you have your own knowledge and life experience and I respect that. And I understand that. And, and it actually paves the way for some really good dialogue. And um, I just, it's, it's a really beautiful picture when you come to people with that perspective of like, Hey, this person believes what they believe uh, because they know some things and have experienced some things that maybe I haven't. Yeah. No, I completely love that. I think there's wisdom in recognizing that the older we are or the, maybe not the older we are, but the more we walk through life, the more we realize we don't know. And the embracing of that uncertainty is part of the whole deal. Um, Both of y'all hit on nature quite a bit in this. What's up with that? <laughs> talk talk to me about that. <laughs> Amber's a pantheist. That's what's up with that. Oh, yeah. Speaking of crazy <laughs> theologies. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know how to not be talking about nature. Yeah. I don't know how to be in nature and it not be pointing to God and to God's divine love. And... um the metaphors are never ending in a garden and that's where I like to stay. To be clear, Amber is not a pantheist. Um, she says that she just has a very beautiful belief that all of the things in nature are sacramental and point to God. And, and, you know, over the 20, almost 24 years, 24 years of marriage, like I would say that's one thing that, you know, Amber has deepened my understanding of. So how has gardening, being in nature, dirt, any of the above, whatever you want to say, um, served as therapy for your walking through despair? Okay. It, it, okay. When I really get in the garden and I'm bent over and I'm pulling things up, I, I usually have no plan. I'm usually reaching and grabbing. I intend to put on gloves. I never do. I end up itching. (laughs) I end up bleeding. 
I, my fingernails are destroyed and I, I get so excited because I discover things and then I end up, you know, discovering life and death both constantly and a bug I've never seen mushrooms. I've never seen, which I love. Um, I, what I need is to get outside of myself, to get out of my head. So it's, it's a little bit of like losing myself in the work, in the dirt and something about that. Nothing actually helps me find myself more than that. Losing Mm -hmm. myself. Mm -hmm. Amber, I've actually read, I think last week or so recently, uh, that there is literal science behind getting dirt under our fingernails. I don't know if you've heard this, that there are microbes in the dirt that actually, um, like when they are, when they're on our skin, they actually create, I don't remember if it's endorphins. I forget which good hormone it is, but it's, it's one of our happy hormones. And so there's actual good science behind not putting on gloves because we need dirt under our fingernails quite literally, which I think is really cool of God to do. Me too. Seth, you bring up nature in some capacity as well. I don't remember if it's like I'm flipping through the book right now. Um, The part about the one piece you've written called Go to the Trail, the river, Mm -hmm. right? The river, the trail, Mm -hmm. the chapter, Mm -hmm. the chapel. Yeah, it's late in the day. Um, You unpack some stuff about nature as well, or at least connecting with finding God in the stuff of earth. Tell me more about your thoughts there. Yeah, I mean, Amber will attest to this. I'm really a head person, and I can really get lost in my head. Um, yeah, you know, we've Tish. I think we've all talked about the Mind Palace um, from from yeah. uh, uh, Sherlock Holmes. Remember from the 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 Benedict Cumberbatch version where he would go into his Mind Palace and sort things out. And the first time I saw that, the Mind Palace, I was like. Oh, I totally get that. That is my place. I know that place. You know what? I will say I believe that was started by like a 15th century Catholic priest. I forget his oh, name. Oh, really? So it's a real thing. So yeah. Okay. Anyway, well, no, it. It, yeah. it is legit a real <laughs> thing. And, um, yeah, and, it is. I, and I'll find myself like I can literally be in a room and things are happening around me and I have no idea, zero idea <laughs> what's happening. Um, almost to the point where it's like a blank screen in front of me because I'm so deep in my mind. And but the thing the thing is again like that's not the way we were meant to live um and the way i know that yeah. is because when i go into nature when i'm running on a trail uh when i'm you know walking a trail when i'm by the river when i'm fly fishing fly you know casting my rod into the river like there's so much um that you have to negotiate as you move there's so much you have to be aware of you have to be aware of the rocks you have to be aware of the currents you have to be aware of the birds um, if you're fishing, the placement of the fly. Um, if you're running the slick spots on the trail, there's so much that you have to be aware of that it actually brings your 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 attention to the space around you, and it brings your attention to the space around you in a way that like pulls you outside of yourself. And for me, I found that whenever I get into that space, when I'm not in my mind palace, when I'm outside of myself, when I'm negotiating things on the trail or, or reading the currents in a river, that 
I'm really, really aware that there is a God that is in the world that is around me that wants to speak to me, that wants to be with me, that wants to give me good things and shows me those good things through the good stuff of earth, which is like a total Rich Mullins rip. That's not me. That's Rich Mullins stuff of earth. Um, but that stuff of earth really is uh, the call out of my head and into my body. And I just think that's so important. Um, and it may not be as important for everybody. I don't know. Maybe some people need to get off the trail and go sit down and think for a little bit. Uh, but I know that we probably have a lot of people who feel that way, right? Who feel like, man, I sit down all day and all I do is think. And then I go home and I have to sit down and I have to sort out all these problems. And all I do is think and blah, 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 blah. But when we get out into nature, something shakes loose. And I think that something that shakes loose is the attention. It's the thing that pulls us out of our brain and into the world. Um, And that's where God interacts with us. I'm not saying God doesn't interact with us through the scriptures. I'm not saying that God doesn't interact with us in our mind palaces or through prayer. But I am saying that God wants to interact with us out in the world. And the only way to do that is to get out of your head. I feel like I, I don't remember who it was, but I I heard somewhere recently some really great wisdom that if you are the type of person to use your your mind during the weekday, that your Sabbath should be physical. And if you are uh, someone who uses their body during the day, like let's say someone who makes with their hands or you know, does some sort of work that's involved with, you know, like a plumber, then their Sabbath should be more in their head. And I think there's something really interesting about like a form of rest being Mm -hmm. actually getting physical or a form of rest actually getting lost in your head. That when we are resting, that doesn't mean um, just going on autopilot, putting on Netflix and spacing out that there's a form of rest that actually goes with getting in nature and moving our bodies and actually working up a sweat and getting dirty and bruised and stuff, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I actually think Sabbath is something that I would like to explore more purposefully. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea of our book is that hope is not some ethereal thing out there mm-hmm. in the great beyond, but it is here and now, and it's something that we need to participate with that we can engage and participate with hope even when we don't Mm. feel it. And Mm. so Sabbath is a great declaration that we have a hope. Even Mm. if, even if the schedule and the to-do list looks like you're not going to make it if you don't take this whole day to work your butt off, Mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. To produce. Right. So, I'm looking at the structure of the book and, you know, we can write as much as we want for ourselves, but when we actually put ink on paper and we send it out to the world, we're writing for a reader and you guys have in each chapter, like a, I don't know if you want to call it an action point or takeaway, uh, because it's not a how-to book at all, but you, you still have a thing. So I'm curious, what do you hope your reader does with this? Or like, what's, what do you want your reader to get out of? this book? What's their takeaway? Yeah. I, th- there are a lot of books out there. I've actually edited a lot of these books and I'm really proud of them. Mm-hmm. They, they do a lot of great work, but it's always like, do these 12 things and then everything will be fine with your life. Uh, do these 10 things and you'll be more organized or more mindful or whatever. And um, I, I don't hate those books. Those books are actually 
very useful in some in some ways. But a lot of those books tend to like tend to like uh, you know promise the world, right? If you do these things, everything will be fixed. Um, I think BuzzFeed is responsible for this, and for that, I hate them. Uh, you know, five ways to organize your Saturday or whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. So, so this is not that. But what we did do at the end of each chapter here is we tried to say, like, what is one practice that you can do to embody X, right? Like building a memorial. Mm. What is one way that you can build a memorial in your home so that you, every time you pass by it, you remember, oh, this reminds me that X, Y, and Z, you know, uh, God provided. Or this reminds me that I have, you know, someone that I can reach out and call when times get tough or whatever the case may be. Um, you know, have have a feast with friends. This is, you know, kind of Amber's favorite chapter, the closing chapter. I mean, one of the things that we can do to cultivate hope is to sit down with friends, even in the dark times, and break amazing bread and, you know, have amazing food and drink amazing wine and do all these, you know, around a table, share the hope of a good meal, right? So um, in this book, we're not actually saying, hey, go out and do all these things. That's not what we're saying. These things in this book, these practices in this book, will not give you everlasting hope and fix your entire life and make everything dreamy again. That's not what this is about. But if you find one or two of these practices that you can say, okay, I actually really need this in my life. Like I need silence in my life, and so I'm going to practice silence. We try to lead the reader to say, what are a couple of those things that we can actually do um, mm-hmm. that will then help us and, and help bring us hope. Um, so yeah, that's, that's, yeah, that's kind of what we're trying to lead the reader to do and saying like, don't just read this as an experience, as our experience, right? Read this as, uh, an experience that you get to participate in. And mm-hmm. the deep down things are everywhere. I mean, truly, if we start to pursue this sacramental lens, for the world, we're going to see the deep down things everywhere. Everything can be an avenue of hope, particularly in some deep, dark despair. And so right now, I mean, to release a book while Israel and Gaza are how they are. I mean, there is a shadow over this world. And I felt it in mass on Sunday, um, just like grief. And it is very weird to, to try to put a book out in in the midst of this and to, to talk about, you know, a work of art or to invite people to our local brewery and say, please come listen to this amazing music. But our friend Micah Boyette, who I love so much, is um, she got to visit Rome this week. And she, she brought our book with her and, and she said something like, even though all this stuff is going on, I'm going to read this. And, and I just thought she is so, she is in the place that we, the three of us have experienced as like heaven, you know, Italy is, is like heaven. And I just thought, because that it's always my picture, like on earth as it is in heaven is Italy (laughs) and not all of it, but you know, and I just thought so many people are, um, that my response to her post was so many people are living out 
on earth as it in, is in hell. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. we get to participate one way or another. And so when we make the choice to make a beautiful plate of food and share it with someone, we are, we are, and can be enacting heaven mm. in the face, in the face of despair. Yeah. So that's what I hope. It's like a, it's like a middle finger to despair. Mm. That's yeah. my super uh, crass way of putting it. <laughs> I wrote a piece, I don't remember if it was a year ago, it was not too long ago, but it was, I wrote it in the midst of something else terrible in the world, and I'm trying to remember what it was. Um, But the piece, I titled it Why We're Required to Find Beauty, because I think we're often tempted to feel guilty or, um, or like we don't care when we care about beautiful things when other people in the world do not have the privilege to to even the bandwidth, the, the literal um, survivability to even care about beauty. And so in that piece, I quoted C.S. Lewis um, and he wrote this in the height of world war two. And, you know, he was a world war one vet and, um, and he was asked the question, why be so frivolous, frivolous and selfish to think about anything but the war? And he wrote, before I went to the last war, I certainly expected that my life in the trenches would, in some mysterious sense, be all war. In fact, I found that the nearer you got to the front line, the less everyone spoke and thought of the allied cause and the progress of the camp- campaign. And then he ex- he goes on and explains um, that he does believe that World War II is a, <laughs> of great import. He says, I believe it to be a duty to participate in this war. And then he says... Um, he analogizes the allied cause of World War II to that of rescuing a drowning man. And he says, if we're personally not drowning, it's our duty to learn life-saving skills so as to be ready when it's our turn to save someone. And he says, it really may be our duty to lose our lives in saying him. But then he says this, and this is the important part. He says, but if anyone devoted himself to life-saving in the sense of giving it his total attention so that he thought and spoke of nothing else and demanded the cessation of all other human activities until everyone had learned to swim, he would be a monomaniac. The rescuing of drowning men is then a duty worth dying for, but not worth living for. And... To me, this hits on that idea of um, the fact that the many, many atrocities of our fallen world are worth dying for, but they're not worth living for. And so our cultural zeitgeist demands that we live for these abominations so that we don't appear uncaring. Um, But in doing so, we forget beauty. And beauty is there not actually to just make us, you know, just to kind of put a Band-Aid on a serious wound as though everything's fine, but it's to remind us that what's actually more real than this, you know? Yeah. And Tish, that's what, I mean, that's part of what makes even marketing this book. And yeah, now we're going to talk <laughs> about marketing because that's what we do. And that's what uh, makes even marketing this book so difficult, right? Because mm-hmm. in the face of all the atrocities that flood Twitter and, and maybe rightfully so, but like all these marketing spaces that, you know, a decade ago, authors tended to use, and they're no good for this anymore. Um, you mm-hmm. know, it, in these spaces where it is all despair and rage and outrage and um, righteous indignation and anger, and a lot of times justified, um, and it's really hard to say, yeah, but pause and consider something beautiful. Pause and consider yeah. something 
hopeful. And you're right. The cultural zeitgeist right now is not inclined towards goodness. It's not inclined towards hope. Um, and so even as we write this book, like we're mindful of the fact that there is a great privilege to write a book about beauty and mm-hmm. hope and to release it into the world. And there's also this great privilege that comes with the fact that that book is probably largely going to be ignored. And that's okay. <laughs> like that's actually a privilege. Yeah. It's a privilege of saying like, yeah, we live in a place um, in our lives where we can uh, pursue this frivolous thing you know, quote unquote, this frivolous thing um, and try to hold out hope for our neighbors and try to create space for those who are struggling um, and, and hope that one day if we struggle again, we'll have neighbors and friends and family that'll continue to hold out hope for us and just continue that cycle of hope giving, knowing that it's, it's, it's kind of a guerrilla work, if that makes sense. Like it's grassroots, Mm -hmm. it's guerrilla, it's never going to be the thing, uh, at least not at this stage of our current milieu. It's never going to be the thing that's going to be touted, but it is going to be the thing that saves the world. Yeah. Yeah. I would argue this book is needed in times like this because we need reminders of why beauty is required, why um, doing things is actually a form of cultivating hope. You know, it really is, you know, digging in the dirt and kneeling when we pray at mass and and going on runs and having people over for dinner, these are all physical sacramental things because we need that. Like, I think even Seth, you and I, the the live in our head types. I don't think we're as alone as maybe someone a hundred years ago who had our personality type would be because everything is digital now. Everything is <clears throat> is less real, you know on the surface that we actually all, every single one of us need reminders of what's more real than what we see. And that's a form of hope. Mm -hmm. So I think that's why your book does such a good job of reminding people the real tactical, tangible, like you say, kind of guerrilla things to do in this, in this weird, weird time we live in, you know, because even though y'all's story is specific to you, I think every person can probably write a chapter with your same chapter titles, you know, um, at some point in their life. So. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, not to uh, make it weird, but we t- we tend to wrap things up talking about beauty. So let's just keep doing that. Um, Amber, you're our guest. So how about you go first? What's something adding more beauty to your life right now? So we just moved to a house that we had built that took forever to get to. And I mean, years mm-hmm. is how it felt. And I'm so grateful to be down here because this is, I'm just, I'm across the field from where we host the farmer's market and just a couple of fields over from where our friends opened Orthodox Farmhouse Brewery. And when we go to the brewery and we sit, we'll sit at a table where other people are probably going to sit down with us. We may know them, we may not. And we end up talking with our neighbors and it's our own little cheers. And that's the kind of stuff that will just soften a stony heart right there and make you think about, I thought, I thought that this person was this way because they have a certain flag in their yard. And, um, (laughs) and just, I feel like my mind's constantly blown. They're beautiful. Yeah. Yeah. I get that. There's something really sacramental about third places. 
I wrote a piece about that recently. These third places where we meet neighbors um, and break bread, man, they're real. All right, Seth, how about you? What's something adding more beauty? Anybody who knows me, like really, really knows me and knows me well, knows that I have a small, just a small crush, tiny crush, not displacing Amber crush, but a small crush on Patty Griffin. And Mm -hmm. in 2019, she released an album that was, it was two two records, uh, which we don't really do that anymore, right? It was like 20 songs or something, I guess, if you're streaming it, called Patty Griffin, which is crazy because that was like 10 albums deep before she has a right. self-named album. Um, but anyway, I, I, hadn't, I didn't really listen to it that much. Amber and the boys got it for me for Christmas either, or my birthday maybe. but um, And I listened to it once or twice and it was fine, but we kind of didn't have a great record player. And then when we moved, we sort of set up the record player again and we got some new speakers for it. So it actually sounds decent and we have a, a an open room where it sits. So it kind of projects into the house. So I put that record on the other day and I forgot how freaking amazing <laughs> it is. Um, I told him, mm. I was like, in my mind, this was kind of a Rocky album, but it is not. It is like a totally chill, mellow, beautiful, lyrically rich, deep, uh, album that is certainly worthy of Patty Griffin. So that is bringing a ton of beauty to my life right now. And I recommend everybody go listen to it. Nice. I'll have to put it on. I'm going to go make dinner in just a sec. It's a good, you're going to love it. You're going to love it. And just yeah. listen to, isn't she a river cool. and dudes, if you love a good woman guys out there who are listening, which is like, I think that's maybe like 3% of our listeners. If you I think it's more are, than you and, think, actually, I think it's more well, than you think. That's great. <laughs> Guys, get, yeah. back me up. Give me some comments. <laughs> let me know. But um, the guys who listen, <laughs> if you're married to or partners with a very good woman, listen to Isn't She a River and you'll lose it. It's such a good song. That's so, great. Tish, love it. what are you mm-hmm. consuming, listening to? Where are you going? <laughs> what are you doing that's bringing more goodness, truth, and beauty to your life? Uh, I just finished reading Andrew Peterson's book, God of the Garden. Amber, have you read it? Oh, no. Okay. You guys would love it, especially you, Amber, but both of y'all would. Um, it is a book. I, first of all, just love Andrew Peterson's writing, but, you know, songs, books, all of the above. I, re- I just really like how he uses words. It is a delightful nonfiction book about trees. Like every chapter is about a tree, but it's all storytelling about his childhood, about his adulthood, his struggle with depression, his longing to find a place, you know, his frustration at moving and traveling and anyway, but he bases it all on trees and kind of in a more specific context, his own land, which they call the Warren um, and the trees he's planted and the, you know, he he's a major gardener. He loves, loves, loves gardening. And he basically does that all the time if he's not writing. And so it's just a really great, lovely read. And I will say, because I had a reader, um, a newsletter reader tell me that I, if I was able to, to listen to the audiobook because he intersperses music that you can't find on an album or sometimes, you know, but a, a different version in the audiobook. And it's true. And I cried buckets listening to it. I was like at the pumpkin patch picking up pumpkins, like crying <laughs> while everyone else was like all like putting their babies in the pumpkins and taking pictures. And I looked ridiculous, but it's so good. So I would recommend the audiobook of God of the Garden by Andrew Peterson. I loved it so much. I'm, I'm making Kyle listen to it right now. So it was really good. Amazing. 
All right. Yeah. All right. Let's all go get it. And Andrew, um, this, this you don't you're not even sponsoring this. So no, not no, sponsored no, by Andrew Peterson or Patty Griffin. <laughs> it's all this is all just how we feel. Or uh, Orthodox Farmhouse. Farmhouse. Is that right? Yeah. Orthodox, Orthodox, yeah. That's right. Orthodox Farmhouse Brewery, who you talk about in your book, The Deep Down Things, which is sort of the sponsor of this episode. So that was a good segue. All right. I am Tish Oxenrider with Seth Haynes. You can find all our episodes at adrinkwithafriend.com where you can help support the show by picking up the next round of drinks. Remember, this is free for you to listen to, but it's not free for us to make. You can find me and all my stuff at tishoxenrider.com. Amber, where can people find you these days? I don't even know anymore. I just text you. Where are you online? I I have a sub stack that I would love to share, Amber C. Haynes, and you can find it through Instagram at Amber C. Haynes also. Okay. We'll link to all of it in the show notes. All right. And Seth, how about you? Just go to SethHaynes.com. Come over to my sub stack from there. Enjoy yourself. It's a fun place. We like to use words, talk about things, examine things. It's fun. It's great. Cool. All right. Kevin McLeod did the music. Kyle Oxenrider did the editing. Seth and I did the talking with Amber. And everything can be found in the show notes. So just go there. We'll be back here again with more soon. So in the meantime, thank you for being here. Mm-hmm.